Hello and welcome to the Africa Hour, the show where we dedicate time and expertise to one policy issue in one African country, looking at it from different perspectives. Today, we are in Ghana, where the tech community is still reeling from Twitter's sudden decision to dismiss all but one of its 20-man team in Accra, the hub of its Africa operations. The staff laid off are taking legal action against Twitter because they say the company violated Ghana employment laws. But what does Ghanaian law say about hiring and firing in the West African country? And how are big tech companies in general respecting or disrespecting the labor laws of the African countries where they are increasingly getting their tech talent from? I talked to three experts who have very different positions on this topic. And later on in the show, you'll hear from the lawyer leading legal proceedings against Twitter for the laid-off staff. That is after the break. Several Silicon Valley firms have been focusing on Africa lately by increasingly hiring workers from the continent. It seemed like a positive development last year when Twitter, under then CEO Jack Dorsey, announced that the company would open an office in Accra. There was a lot of publicity and someone could even say jubilation, with President Nana Akufo-Addo personally responding to Dorsey on Twitter. But just recently, things quickly changed as most people now know. The employment termination emails were sent to the Ghana employees' personal accounts having been denied access to their work wires. But the employees that work in the Twitter Ghana office feel insulted, discriminated against, disrespected in the way this has been handled. They received a termination notice just four days after the physical location opened. It just said, see attached. And the letter says that they were not offered next steps or any severance at all, so they're out in limbo. The laid-off staff say Twitter broke the Ghana labor law. The law requires a three-month notice and a negotiated payment package. Twitter failed to do that. Just a bit of a footnote, employment law in Ghana requires at least three months' notice of termination. It also demands redundancy pay, which is to be negotiated between the organization, the employer, or trade unions. Yes, Twitter fired people in all parts of the world. Still, the episode in Accra has had me wondering. Just how well are international tech companies in general complying with the laws of the African countries they are increasingly recruiting from and operating in? Today, I'm talking to Kofi Yeboah, a program officer with Mozilla Foundation. Hello, Kofi. Hi, Olimide. I am also speaking with Josiah Eison, who is the CEO of iSpace Foundation and Ghana Hubs Network. He is helping to build the local ecosystem over in Ghana. Hi, Josiah. Hello, um, pleasure to be here. And finally, I have Cecilia Verend Monson, who is a researcher and founder of Talent Up Africa, a recruiting firm that's connecting companies worldwide to employees in Africa. Hi, Cecilia. Hello, it's a pleasure to be invited to this discussion. Thank you. Thank you very much. I think the case of Twitter in Accra illustrates a wider trend where Silicon Valley companies and others from across North America and Europe are increasingly willing to enter and play on the African tech scene on the one hand. Which is good, but then, how are companies performing when it comes to compliance with existing laws, especially around hiring conditions? 
the Twitter case is the one that everyone is talking about at the moment. Do you have other examples as well, both positive as well as negative? Kofi, over to you. I think just to also sort of go back a little bit is that this is not the first time we're having multinational companies coming in onto, you know, into the continent to employ Africans. Right. There's no negative aspect to everything uh, within that context. But in the case of the big tech companies, what we have seen is that oftentimes, and particularly in Africa, in this case, is that they've done a lot of, well, a lot might be an exaggeration, but they've done some significant hiring from the continent, especially from the software engineers. If you look at the treatment and the treatment in terms of the labor standards that they uphold in developed countries as compared to the ones that they uphold in developing countries, it's always a bit of a, you, you see some gaps in there here and there. A typical example is the current case ongoing in Kenya, where, you know, Meta is having issues with, with the Kenyan law because they are unfairly treating the employees that were hired by a third party contracted by Meta. Right. So that's always been the issue. I think it's been overlooked a bit over time because our existing labor laws or practices or standards find it a bit difficult, especially with the big tech companies, find it a bit difficult to address what that problem is because of how traditional and analog, for lack of better words, our existing labor practices are. So what do you think, from from your point of view, are the biggest reasons companies are getting into these legal issues? Is it lack of awareness? I, I would say this is not a lack of awareness on the part of the tech companies. I think that because we've had similar issues with Uber in Tanzania, right, or even in, in other parts of Africa where they have sort of mistreated their workers. In other countries, their workers, the drivers are seen as employees. In, in, in our part of the world, our law hasn't made that clear. Uh, but Uber, for instance, has been another case that has happened on the continent. But they've always, always found a way of avoiding the problem. It's either they threaten to pull out from the country mm-hmm. or they come in as helping the country. So we are going to help uh, you know, increase employment in your country. Are you going to you know, tell us to move away? Obviously, any African government will not do that because the problem is that there is an increasing unemployment on the continent, right? right? And so every government would sort of welcome them. So that's been the issue. So what I mean is that big tech companies are aware, Twitter is aware of what has happened with Uber and other companies, right? They continue to do that because they know there's a way out. I think they've been really very surprised at how currently things are changing and how Africans are becoming very vocal and bold at addressing some of these through legal means. It doesn't look like the hiring spree in Africa will stop anytime soon. And some analysts are you know, encouraging even more firms globally to recruit in Africa. Turning over to you now, Cecilia, uh, in a recent paper that you wrote, you say African tech workers are instrumental to global tech ecosystems. And your company, the company that you lead, is helping to connect companies with tech talent on the continent. Could you maybe elaborate for us your ideas on why you think African techies are instrumental to the global tech ecosystem? Thank you very much for for this question. For me personally, when you see some of the very bright, hardworking, flexible, optimistic African youth, it's really clear what a benefit those youth could bring to the global economy. If we look at global companies' demand for tech, we are clearly in the middle of a tech talent crisis. If we look at US alone, just last year, 
U.S. couldn't fill 1 million um, IT positions and only 50,000 graduates to fill 500,000 computer science roles. If we look at that and then we look at Africa with a booming population where the majority is under 30 years of age that are getting access to computers and to, to infrastructure and Wi-Fi and that are willing to be exposed and work remotely for U.S. firms, it becomes a no no brainer for me to sort of tie those trends together, especially in the aftermath of COVID, where if anything, COVID opened up a remote work arrangement as more permanent than before. And what we're trying to do with Talent Up Africa is building a sustainable business case on this. And also it's it's somewhat difficult if they don't, some, especially in Nigeria, getting visa, unless you have the opportunity with an international firm beforehand, is also difficult. So it's very fruitful to also connect those people with global companies. Just to stay with our current theme, which is big tech employing African labor on the continent and then somehow flouting the laws, what happens when they do this? When they violate the laws in the countries where they're operating, like we're seeing in some African cases, how worried are you that, that companies you're advising to seek talent in Africa might operate in a way that could be deemed as exploitative? The way we are working around that is that we actually employ the people in my daughter company. So within Town Up Africa's subsidiary companies in Nigeria or in other countries. And by that, we also make sure that we are abiding to legal laws. We are making sure that we are fulfilling governmental regulations. We are making sure that we're paying pensions, HMO for our contractors that we then somewhat contract out to the U.S. companies to avoid a situation where the company would not follow the rules of the countries. It's making sure that we are following what the guidelines in the respective countries are. So, And that goes for everything from maternity leave to, to sick days, to number of days of vacation, to all of those things. And we are very clear upfront with the companies in the U.S. that we work with that that's what they should be expected to follow. It's a way to also um, for the talent because the talent will go to companies and work through companies that are making sure that their rights and their needs are fulfilled. Otherwise, they will leave us as well. If you look at the statistics in 2021, uh, Google and Accenture put a report together saying that there is about 712,000 professional developers on the continent. That's not a large number. It's not a big number at all, which means that Everyone are competing for those talent. And if you're not treating them with the respect and how they should be treated, they will go to another firm. That's, that's just the way it is. I'm going to come to Josiah shortly. But before I do that, I want to come back to you, Kofi. Could you maybe tell us a bit more about the case in Kenya with a contractor working on behalf of Meta in the country? Because I'm trying to see how that would compare, for example, to what Cecilia is describing as the way um, how company works on the continent. I think in, in Kenya, what's happening is that uh, Meta recruited uh, a third-party organization called Samasama to help sort of train their data sets, right? And so these employees, contractors, not employees, contractors, you know, sort of do labeling of, it could be pictures or they go through very sensitive videos and images to either do content moderation and all that sort of kind of work. This is not the first time that Meta is doing that or any other big tech company is doing that. Google does that anyway through different organizations. The issue with, with the Kenyan case is that 
these contractors were paid very, very low, like really low compared to their counterparts in other in, in developed countries, right? And the reason is that, and this is something economists normally call the wage premium, where multinationals <laughs> would say that we are paying you a little bit higher than what your local organization would pay you. But that does not mean that it's the same as you are supposed to be paid for the job you are doing. And that is where the issue is. And secondly, these people, you know, because of the kind of work they are doing, uh, it has a toll on their mental health. And people have had issues of depression and have requested mental health assistance. The, the company have said that they have that services provided for the employees. But if you look into some of the investigative work that has been done, it's often done from a very group sessions which often makes it very difficult for people to voice out. For anyone who has gone through a mental health program, you know definitely that it's not just a one session and then you're done. And you're going back to do the same job that triggers what you're supposed to do. So they are just requesting for a fair treatment, but they haven't received that. So so they asked the parent company, in this case, the parent company in quotes Meta, to hold the company accountable. But the Meta says, hey, we didn't hire you. Right. Right. So they took them to court. Cecilia, um, how are you planning to avoid such situations that um, Kofi just described? I think for us being very straightforward with the clients that we are having, that you pay for the brain, not the location. There is clearly a moderation. If you have a budget on 300000 for the same role in the US, maybe 300000 in Kenya or Nigeria or Rwanda is maybe not the best level, but you should definitely not go down to the 30000 just because the salary range in the local countries is 30,000. So we are very upfront with that. Um, Also looking, if you look at the statistics, a senior developer today in Africa should earn somewhere between 50 and 60. And that's definitely the minimum. So it's a short answer to your question is we are very upfront with the clients we work with from the beginning, what they should be expected to pay. Uh, Unfortunately, this with third party, party recruiters, paying very small salaries. It's not only, for example, Meta in Kenya that is paying smaller salaries, but there is also a situation often where some of the third party uh, sort of recruitment firms are taking a lot from the salaries. So really, instead of taking, say, 15% to 20%, some companies are, are taking up to 60% of the, the salary from the clients on the ground, from the talent on the ground. And that's simply just not fair. We wanted to understand better what you know tech is in Accra because we're entering this story actually from Accra. We wanted to understand better what they're thinking. Here is what Klenam, a developer, told us. If we had a good system of accountability, a lot of even the startups in Ghana would say they do more than more than what even Twitter is doing. Only that Twitter is a big company, their news will go further. But a lot of these things happen even here in, in Ghana. So if this was done in the in Europe, you know, it would be a different story. GDPR yeah. in Europe is very strict, but in Africa it's not strict yeah. because our regime, our, our regulatory regime is very different. So I think it is the the legal framework, and whenever we talk about government and legal framework, this is what we mean. The government needs to build the framework so that no Twitter, in quotes, can do something like that to employees who are Ghanaians or who are in the, in the African space. 
That was Clenham, a software developer in Accra. We also spoke to Kala Olympio, the lawyer leading legal proceedings against Twitter on behalf of the laid-off staff in Ghana. She says that proper labor laws are not the problem there, but that the real issue is a lack of enforcement of existing policies. Take a listen to some of the comments she had. In this case, this is a mass layoff which amounts to a redundancy exercise under Ghana's Labor Act. And so there are certain statutory procedural requirements that Twitter should have followed and they did not follow. So then we kind of issued a demand to Twitter to come to the negotiating table. It's not, it's not a suit in the courts. And that's because Ghana has fairly strong labor laws and, you know, quite a clear procedure laid down in a case like this of a redundancy. You are meant to give three months notice to the chief labor officer engage in the negotiation with your staff before you actually implement it. Right? That's what the law says. The problem is that that provision of the law does not come along with, let's say, a penalty. You know, it doesn't say, so therefore the chief labor officer has the power to compel them to do it or can issue a fine. So because of that, it's like in many situations, if there's no powers of enforcement that goes along with a rule, while the rule is there, it doesn't have teeth. I think that when tech companies are coming to Africa, they should approach Africa with respect, Africa and Africans with respect. These are professionals on the same level as every other, you know, give them the same benefits, give them the same protection, show them the same respect. If you're going to end your relationship with them, that's fine. That's business. Show them respect. Do not make them think or feel like you view them as second class citizens. I mean, it's completely unacceptable and, and, and it's not it's not going to work. That was Kala Olympio with some interesting comments on the Twitter case in Ghana. Keep an eye out for the full interview in a bonus episode of the Africa Hour. Josiah, you're helping to develop the Ghana Startup Act. How does it address the growing trend of multinationals hiring in Africa? How would you like to see Ghanaian policies address the operations of international companies in Ghana? That's a great question. And I think we have to kind of walk it back a little bit because a lot of these um, laws that we are trying to push or even talk about, lack of a better word, they're much more advanced than a lot of our society um, labor laws, right? So we are playing catch up anyway. And I think if we want to advise government on how to go about these labor laws, it, it's always going to be a policy issue. But then I think like Kofi said, if you're dealing with an environment where the investor is able to tell the government what it is that they want, because the government are also looking at it from a monetary point of view, they don't particularly care about the average citizen, right? Um, because if somebody's going to invest two, three hundred million into my economy, I don't think I'm going to really sit down and start thinking about, you know, the back pain of one or two employees and working hours. And so for us, and again, our government, they are new to this whole remote working and it's going to take a long time for them to get it. We are not exactly a tech advanced economy just yet. I mean, Kofifi, correct me if I'm wrong. A lot of the things that we tend to focus is agriculture, agricultural manual labor, right? 
Right now, where would that law even come from? Are we going to use the British laws? Are we going to use the American employment laws? Or are we going to create our own? So we are in that mix of trying to play globalization, but at the same time, localize a lot of our policies. So I think talking to government through this startup bill has even been a challenge in itself for them to even recognize what a startup is. At the moment, people don't even understand what a startup is. So for you to even have that labor law conversations would be difficult. It's not impossible, but it would be difficult because if you can't even label what a startup is, then we come to SMEs, then we're going to look at multinationals, you know, again. And I think Cecilia made a point when she talked about developers earning anywhere 50, 60K a year, right? But in reality, it can't happen in our environment. I think it has to be the carrot and stick movement because right now, if we try to bulldoze our way in it, we will get stonewalled, right? And pretty much that's what's even happening right now with the startup bill because a lot of things that we want to push are being stonewalled because it's new to them. And we just have to be gentle in our approach to it, really. Josiah, you've captured two things. You have investors coming into your country, bringing a lot of money your first instinct if you're a policymaker is to look at how to allow the money to work in the country because that's investment. That's essentially what you've been asking for for a long time. But at the same time, you have to balance that with you know the rights of people in the country. You have to balance attracting investment with ensuring that the investors are doing the right thing in the country. So I'm turning to you, Kofi. This is not a Ghana-specific case. What Josiah described is not specific to Ghana in any way. And what Kala described about, you know, ensuring that big tech companies are regulated is also not a Ghana-specific case. It's not even an Africa case. It's something that countries are struggling with around the world. How can we as Africans and African policymakers balance a business-friendly environment with protecting African tech workers, especially with so many young people taking up remote work? That's one part of it. The other part is, how do we also protect the local ecosystem, which I think Josiah already referred to earlier? This is a a multi-million dollar question. (laughs) It's tough. And I think that we've acknowledged that difficulty that comes with it. Right. I think that we need to be very intentional at creating labor laws that address, in large extent, some specific issues just like this, right? I think that we need to understand and be a little bit proactive in anticipating some of the the changes that are coming up in labor issues, right? Because remote work has been with us for a while now, but how many countries across the world, you know, have changed, not necessarily changed, but revised the existing labor laws to be able to meet some of these demands, right? Mm -hmm. I think that we need to be quite proactive around it and, and sort of develop very tailored policies, to these issues. Uh, so that's number one. We have to be intentional about it. We can't assume that existing labor laws will be able to tackle some of these issues. And as, as Josiah rightly said, these labor laws have been in existence for a while. It can't tackle every issue. So that's number one. In terms of protecting employees' rights in the sense of Africa in general, I think that a clear case is what is happening in Kenya now. I think that we were all surprised to hear the Kenyan court say that Meta, you can't be sued in Kenya. This is the first time we're hearing that. Right. It's just unheard of, right, that a Kenyan co- a court would be, be able to a sort of adjust its way of dealing with 
is, you know, normal issues like this in a very different way. So I think that, you know, the enforcing bodies, if, if that's the name we want to call it, should be also be willing to adjust the way they handle some of these issues. Again, it will be very difficult. Mm-hmm. It will be very, very difficult to sort of uh, reduce the risk involved in some of these things. But I think that we are capable of setting clearly what can be done. And I think that a Kenyan case for me is something that I'm looking forward to see how that clearly created a path for that. Josiah, I can see that you would like to say something. Can you go on? Yes. So, I mean, when Kofi talked about when the Kenyan court said to Meta, you can be sued in Kenya, right? We both know this is just a typical negotiation tactic, right? Because all they have to say is, oh, yeah, you can be sued here. And then Meta will be probably say, what? And they'll be like, yeah. And then you go to the table, have the conversation, and then they will say, okay, if you pay us X amount of money, then the case can be hashed out. And earlier you talked about how do we protect... Um, the local tech ecosystem, yeah, in, in, in countries. Right. It, the only way we can do that is by investing in our tech companies locally, right? So let me give you an example where you have situations in the past, Andela, for example. Andela in Nigeria invested a lot of money into developing local talent, mainly so that they can be able to use them as remote workers and all of those other things. So you, the government, if you've not invested that much money into your local talent, you don't really have a voice to tell them where and how they work, right? You're not laying infrastructure, you're not um, giving them laptops, you're not giving them data, you're not giving them any sort of support whatsoever to build your own capacity, even as an individual, let alone as an organization. So if for example, the iSpace where we spend a lot of our own resources training developers only for them to leave the companies that gave them all these resources to go and do remote work, right? So even those of us that are on ground in the private sector that are building the capacity of the private sector are feeling the, the pains of it because we don't get help from the government. And here are the case where government themselves are not even investing in coding programs at any level, apart from, let's say, coding for girls at schools, which is great because, and the grassroots is something that we need to do, but we're talking about from an employability point of view, they're not doing that. So we can't really speak on, you know, how to support big tech until we make our local tech companies competitive by, you know, creating a conducive environment for them to work in. And it can be as simple as this, and Kofi, correct me if I'm wrong, in our countries, we pay rent two or three years in advance, right? So as a tech company, I went and raised 100,000. Culturally, we have trust issues. So I need to have an office for you to trust me in order for you to come to my office. So my landlord then says, I need to pay $50,000 rent for them for the next two years. So I've paid that $50,000. I'm not competitive. Then you expect me to then pay good wages to developers from the same 50000 I just lost already. That's impossible. I, I just want to ask you this uh, very clearly, Josiah. Are you saying that we have to be careful about tech companies coming to hire in African countries? Or would you like to see that not happen? Is that what you're talking about? No, I want, to, I want us to be careful. I want to see it happening. But we shouldn't make it a free-for-all. Right. We have to be very intentional about it. So 
it's almost like if you em uh, employ one of our own people, you have to invest to train 10 people kind of system, right? So that, and again, in order for us to do that, how would you actually justify that to tell a company that if you are going to employ people in my country, you will also have to pay something extra uh, beyond the taxes and all the other payments that the company would make employing people in your country? Right. By making it, um, what I say, conducive for them to be able to invest in those countries. So there has to be other incentives that goes with that investment, right? Because if you invest in Ghana, for example, let's say with this Twitter situation, the government probably will partner with you. So instead of Twitter having a whole, have to kind of rent a whole building, they could have given one of those government buildings that have no use at the moment, right? So then becomes almost like a local partner in that regard. So then my investment is giving you infrastructure, right? That infrastructure then means that if you employ one person, then you have to put up a system that, you know, trains people to build internal capacity. Then developers also have to be honest, in when they get employed, because a lot of them are not paying local taxes anyway, right? See, so if you get employed and you're not paying local taxes, the government doesn't know, but then when things go wrong, you want then government to stand in and fight on your behalf. It doesn't work. It doesn't work like that, right? See, so we all have to be pragmatic. We all have to be honest in how we want this system to move. We want tech companies to come in they need to work with government by, let's say, like I said, government being an infrastructure partner. Here is a building that we have no use of at the moment. We will give you that building. But in that thing, what you do is you will build capacity of our local um, ecosystem. So if you hire one of our great developers, you have to ensure that you're training people to be able to then, you know, take over when the time comes. Whatever the case may be, there has to be some sort of local capacity building incentive or demand in that relationship that we have with um, big tech. But it's great for the big techs to come because it shows that your environment is competitive and it's, you know, nice for them to be here. But at the same time, we shouldn't just let them walk in and do whatever, you know, whatever it is that they want to do, really. Okay, I think we are beginning to find a sort of agreement uh, around this table. <laughs> I'm going to turn this over now to Cecilia because some of the points that Josiah is making, they would affect a company like the one that you have. So in other words, Josiah is saying that certain conditions have to be put in place by governments, right, to ensure that companies, when they come to hire talent on the continent, are also leaving something behind. Thinking, of course, of the idea that, you know, as he said earlier, if a local company trains a developer, after a while the developer can leave the company and go work remotely for, you know, a tech company from outside. The idea that tech companies should be required to do more beyond just hiring people on the continent. How does that strike you? For me, it strikes me as extremely important. If you're not taking that responsibility, you are going to have problems with the governments and with the talent. Uh, I think when a big multinational company from the USA, for example, is hiring from Ghana, they are saving about, I mean, 50%, 70%. It's very fair to say, okay, if I'm saving this much amount of money, 
there should also be the possibility for me to either set money in a fund that would develop additional developers that would then work locally or at least that the company who is for example if it would be in the case of myself that if I'm taking a larger chunk from from that salary that I make sure that I develop other developers that would bring go back into the ecosystem on the ground I mean clearly it's it's a problem of taking that something that I am discussing and have been discussing with new investors about okay if we take the local great talent and we place them as remote workers for international companies what then happens with the big problems on the ground we know the telecom industry or the banking industry has major problems uh, finding good tech tech people because the good tech people are being poached by firms like myself to international companies and having regulations that forces and put into system how for example I could give back to the ecosystem I think would be very beneficial I see if you're not willing to play by those rules you will skew the ecosystem overall so then the longevity for a company like myself would not be that that very uh, long really I like that you agree with that, but I'm also wondering whether it isn't the same thing that tech companies say all over the world. Regulators, you know, just regulators. <laughs> <laughs> That's we, we're, It's up to you, government to regulators. I mean, what, what else can we do beyond just telling government to regulators? Because as Josiah has said earlier, it's not easy for government to regulate, right? Mm-hmm. And as you know, it's also not easy for, not just in Africa, for any government around the world to regulate tech companies. So, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking of something a bit more concrete than just saying that we sh- there should be regulations that force companies to do certain things. Cecilia? Mm, yes, I guess it is for companies like myself, for others, Andalai One or TalentQL or Decagon or The Room, Redford Svaniker, to really take on the leading hat and say we're going to do it and potentially also do an association and say we're doing it together to make sure that we are protecting local ecosystems and local labor laws. So I think that is then the solution and it's something that is probably very, very important and needed especially since some of the governments might not be willing to enforce some some rules because if a company is coming and saying I'm going to invest this much of amount of money into to the ecosystem clearly that will be what is the most important thing so clearly uh, the the enforcing rules might not be the first priority thank you cecilia kofi i see you'd like to say something please go ahead I was just going to say that one other thing that we could also do concretely is to start pushing for lobbyists who are not focusing on pushing big tech companies. But we have to increase investment into lobbying for, like, for instance, uh, society organizations who have a proper understanding of these effects, right, to be able to push for workers in this in this system, because we've seen an increasing level of lobbyists who are pushing for labor laws to be in favor of better companies and not just in Africa, across Europe and the, and the US. So I think that we need a reverse of that in favor of the labor that is being exploited in this case. Thank you, Kofi Yeboah. Thank you, Josiah Eison. And thank you, Dr. Cecilia verand Monson. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, thank a you. big pleasure. At the end of every episode, I will tell you what I have learned from the conversations and discussions we have. So, here are the three things I've learned in this episode of the Africa Hour. My first and probably biggest takeaway is that African governments are still playing catch-up 
when it comes to drafting and implementing laws, regulations, and policies that can put big tech companies in check. Like Josiah said, it will take some time for our lawmakers to really understand how the tech ecosystem works. But this is not a problem peculiar to African governments. All over the world, governments are finding it incredibly hard to understand and regulate big tech. Politicians and lawmakers are still looking for ways to adapt rules made in the analog era for a digital one. Policies and regulations have failed to match the speed of change in a digital world. Not just that, regulations also need to be responsive to technological innovations. For me, the billion cities question is, can African governments find ways to do something that other governments have found extremely hard to do? But when it comes to labor laws, which is our entry point to this story, robust labor laws are in place in Ghana, but the government needs to have the capacity and will to enforce them. My second takeaway is that we probably need more lobby groups pushing for the rights of local employees hired by big tech companies, as Kofi pointed out. We need those groups to counter the powerful influence of these companies and push African governments to act. Things are already changing, though, as we have heard during the episode, with Meta, for example. Although the company argued that it cannot be sued in Kenya, the country's Supreme Court has ruled that it can, in fact, face charges in the country. And finally, I learned from Cecilia that recruitment firms also have some leverage in getting the foreign tech companies they hire for to comply with local laws. These include the popular ones like Talent Up Africa, which she leads, and Andela. And the consensus is that Everyone has a role to play to ensure a fair environment for African tech workers. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to dig some more into tech companies and the labor law controversies surrounding them in Africa, we have listed some of the most interesting articles and papers on the topic on our website, afripoli.org forward slash podcasts. The Africa Hour is brought to you by APRI, Africa Policy Research Institute, and is produced by Bear Radio. I am Olumide Abimbola. Our producer is Shola Lawal, with assistance from Nora Chirikure in Berlin and Kwabena Nkrumah in Accra. In the next episode, we ask, are fintechs underregulated in Kenya? That episode is out in April.